Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, Career Coach One and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my Right Fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Daniela Kame, is soaked in passion. But passion in and of itself is not enough. Daniela and my other guests know how to harness that passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. On to my guest today, Daniela Kame, the mistress of whimsical sculpture. Daniela holds an MFA from Claremont Graduate School. She is an award-winning sculptress whose works are whimsical, imaginative, and bursting with color. Bicycle chains come to life as cascading hair. Discarded metal tools and bolts are artfully transformed to works of art. Daniela does not recycle. She recreates from discards her husband Garrett finds. Daniela's sculptures appear in galleries, collections, shows, and exhibitions capturing the hearts of many around the world. Listen in to find out why her art is universally loved. Daniela, welcome to Win Without Competing. Hello, Dr. Arlene. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, Daniela. You were born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Tell us about your childhood. Okay, I was born in 1953 in Rio, which is one of the most beautiful cities on earth. And my childhood was a very nurturing, um, very well-rounded childhood. My father was from Switzerland and immigrated to Brazil to work for a company, and that's where he met my mother. And my mother was a stay-at-home mom when we were small children before we started school. But then... She did something interesting. We talked before the show 
And I know that she created a school called the Waldorf School. Can you tell us what that was? Correct. Um, We were ready to start school, and my parents looked around and weren't very happy with what they could find for our education. So my mother decided to get together with some other teachers, some of them were from Europe, and to start a school which is based on the Waldorf education. And the Waldorf education is learning from the inside out, is a very creative way of learning how to write and read and learn through music, dance, and movement. And it started in a regular house. One of the teachers offered her house to start the school, and we started with four children in a classroom, and it was most the most creative atmosphere for us. Now, what did you do that differentiated what would normally have been done if you had gone to a regular school, a so-called regular school, in Brazil? In other words, what what was different about it? What was different about, about it is that the teaching method is a very free method of bringing out the best in each child. Each child is looked at as individual, and so they look and see what your strengths are, and they go from there. Like, for example, I was very interested in, in movement and art, and so they let me write with big colors, pencils with no lines, to give me the freedom to explore that. So it's a school that really looks at each child as an individual child. And because they're small classrooms, they can do that compared to other schools where they have a lot more children in a classroom. And I expect also, too, there wasn't an issue about discipline, which is a common problem in our schools today. Um, Here again, the school works with the parents very closely of making sure that the home life is conducive to what they teach. For example, they've very much discouraged that children sit in front of the TV, but instead do creative things with the family, help in the kitchen cooking, and be very involved in family structure. They're also very strict on nutrition, so they talk to the parents about what the children eat because they feel all of that has an impact on how the child can learn when when they come to school. And we have Waldorf schools in the U.S. as well, uh, Daniela? You have Waldorf school in every country in the world now. I and it started see. with Rudolf Steiner at the turn of the century. It's a whole philosophy, but I don't think there's one country in the world that doesn't have a Rudolf Steiner school because most of the schools start by parents that want to give their child a different education, and then they learn about it, and they start it in very small environments. Is the primary goal to encourage creativity and divergent thinking, which is the essence of creativity? Absolutely. Absolutely. They believe that if you teach creatively, the children stay involved and they have interest in the, and they don't lose interest in studying. And they don't force, for example, we don't start writing until the third grade. So they don't force things at a too early of an age. They want to wait till that child is very ready for whatever they introduce. Going further, at what age did you become passionate about art? Well, I think it 
started when I wasn't even conscious about it because my mother was very creative in, for example, when the birthday would come up, she wouldn't just take us to the store to buy a gift. She would sit down with us and create a gift. And so everything came from my mother's creativity at a very early age. She also was very interested in music, so we hear a lot of music and she would play. And then it grew into a passion as I got older, but I think there was a real distinctive time in my life when I turned nine where I knew that that was my path. And I expect that was really stimulated, nurtured, fostered uh, by going to the Waldorf school. The Waldorf school and my home life. The combination. Yes, my father was an engineer and in a very different field, but always was very supportive of the arts. We were taken to museums and galleries at a very early age. Going further, your family, I guess obviously your parents, because I know you had a sister. What was the age difference? What is the age difference between you and your sister? My sister's two years older. All right. And your parents decided that they were going to leave Brazil and move to Switzerland. What prompted them to make that change, and how did it affect you? My, my mother, who opened that school, it only went through primary school. And then once it went to higher education, you would have to bring teachers in and The facility wasn't there, and the teachers weren't available at the time. So my parents had to make a very important decision, especially because my sister was getting ready to go to to high school. And my father decided that he felt that for us, Switzerland was the best education we could get in the higher education. And also his parents lived there and were getting older, so he factored that into his decision also. But then also there was another decision of there was a lot of political unrest in Brazil at the time, especially between 1955 and 64. And then in 64, the military came into it. It came into a dictatorship, and that's when my father knew that he wanted to leave Brazil. Now, you left from our discussion. I know that you left unwillingly, but nevertheless, you left with the family. And what happened next when you went to Switzerland? When we arrived in Switzerland, in the town we moved to, there was no Waldorf education. And it would have been about an hour and a half by train, and my parents felt that that was too far to go, and so I had to be enrolled into a public system. And that was one of the most difficult transitions for me. First of all, I came from a country that was very free and the people are very open to a country that is much more closed off and more conservative, and I felt that very much as a child. I felt that people didn't have the warmth, like Brazilians. Brazilians are sunny, very open, and lively people. And then I had to go into a public system that was, again, completely different from what I had experienced at the Waldorf education. And I had a very difficult time making the transition. Out of the whole family, I think I was the one that suffered the most, and I was very unhappy with my environment. Now, you were how old at this time? At this time, that was 1964. I was 11. You were 11. All right. 
You also told me that you would ask your mother uh, to allow you to stay home. Tell us about that. Well, I think that was art was my refuge at the time because I I really disliked going to school, and so I asked my mother if I could lock myself in my bedroom and paint all day, and just pretend that I wasn't feeling well. And she knew how much it meant to me and how unhappy I was at that school. So she allowed me to do that every once in a while. And actually she would tell my father I wasn't feeling too well because he wouldn't have been as supportive about that as she was. I think that your mother was very kind to you from what you're describing. She was very in tune of what I needed. And I think she saw from a very early age that that was going to be my creative path, and she was nurturing it all the way. You certainly have a right-fit mother. Yes. Don't you agree? You have a right-fit mother. Yes, I had both my parents were right-fit. They knew that I needed to take that path. It was just my father was a little bit more academically strict. But I think it's wonderful because your mother is still with us today, and she's 86. Am I correct, Daniela? Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, it's terrific. She's still teaching music in Switzerland, right? She still has students come to her home. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. So because she was passionate about what she was doing, she, I, I expect, experienced the extent of your passion. Yes, and she, she understood me well. She she saw that I didn't quite fit into the box and didn't fit into the school system, so she did nurture what she felt was strong in me. Well, I think it's wonderful that she didn't try to squeeze you into the box. No, I think they knew by that time nobody could squeeze me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know you're independent, Daniela, and we're going to talk further about this. At age 18... You were going on vacation when you met Garrett in a train station in Lucerne. What happened next? What happened next is I was leaving with my friends to Italy to vacation like we had done many times, and he was arriving from Paris, and we met very briefly in the station in Lucerne. We said goodbye to him and went into a little cafe, and accidentally, I would say synchronicity brought him back in there, and we sat down, and my friends asked him to come to Italy to meet me and them the next day or whenever he felt like it, and told them we were going to stay down there. And to my surprise, the very next day, he showed up where we were staying, and we have been together ever since, and it's been 37 years. Tell me, how did you decide that 37 years ago, when you were very young, how did you decide that Garrett would make the right fit husband? What about him intrigued you and fascinated you and connected him to you? Well, I felt right away that he was a very spontaneous person, that he was willing to try out new things, and that he had a wanderlust like I did. And because the minute we talked, he said, why don't we go together to Nice and spend a few days in Nice? And the next day we packed our bag, left my friends, and we hitchhiked to Nice. 
And then, of course, you got married in Europe. Am I correct? No, or did you we got get married we, when you we moved to California. In, yes, first we traveled to Greece together and stayed on an island for a while and did some odd jobs to get a little bit of an income and enjoyed the the islands. And then I discovered that I was pregnant. The initial um, trip was supposed to take us all the way to India, but then we decided being pregnant, it would be too hard to travel that far, and we decided to go back to California where he would introduce me to his family. Ah, so you got married when you uh, came to California then? That's correct. Okay. Were they surprised that he picked up a Brazilian beauty? (laughs) Um, They were all very anxious to meet me. (laughs) Oh, well, that was a good thing. Anxious (laughs) or eager? Uh, I would say eager, yeah. Good. Because anxious meaning that they had anxiety about it. Well, they never quite knew what he was going to do next either. He was kind of the free spirit in their family too. So I guess they were probably curious as well. Yes. And then you you were in California as you are. So in other words, you've been in California now for more than 30 years. That's right. Okay. And you began your artistic endeavors working with clay. Tell us how that evolved. Well, I've always worked in clay in small and with small little pieces when I was a child because my mom always bought clay for us. But the real change in my life came when I took it. My children were young, and I was a stay-at-home mom again until they started kindergarten. And as soon as they started school, I took a class up at a junior college in the ceramic department. And my teachers were wonderful, nurturing, very encouraging to have my freedom, and I fell in love with clay. Well, I guess you fall in love then with Garrett, with your children, (laughs) and, and with clay. Okay, so then what happened subsequently... Uh, that motivated you to pursue a bachelor's and subsequently a master's degree? Well, I stayed in the clay department for about three years, and I I went up there almost every day to work, and I knew that I would make a career throwing pots and, and building sculptures. But after three years, my teachers um, saw that I probably should go on, and they encouraged me to go look at the Claremont Colleges because they said they're colleges that, again, look for individuality, and they felt that it was the perfect college for me. And my teacher had graduated from there, and they both wrote me an excellent letter, and I was accepted, and it was definitely the right college for me. Another right-fit situation. Absolutely. Okay. You received five fellowships and awards to pursue your studies. Tell us how that came about. Well, it was the teachers at my junior college that I think they get together and they would pick students that they felt should go on, and then they awarded them some scholarships to go on to higher education. So they, in essence, I guess, nominated you. Exactly. Okay. You told me that you don't like awards. Why is that? It's 
it's not something that's important to me. Um, an award is a recognition, which, of course, when you get one, you, you, you're grateful for it, but it's not something I aspire to. I always felt that my award was getting up every morning and being able to have a creative life and structure my whole day in a creative way. So that's my highest achievement that I felt I could get. But then there's other things that are very um, rewarding, and that feels better than just getting a ribbon or you know, being written up in a book. People that come to me and they buy my work and they write me notes all the time saying how happy they feel when they look at my work, how it inspires them to do something with creativity, and that is my strongest awards. So the reinforcements from your clients, in essence. Yeah, that my work can bring happiness to people, and when people tell me, oh, you inspire me, that is the ultimate for me, when I can bring inspiration to somebody else. And then also, too, I know from our discussions that you compete with yourself, that you keep raising the standard higher and higher. Um, Tell us how you do that. Well, I always try to challenge myself with new ideas um, because I don't like to stay stale and stay in the same mode all the time. So I'm constantly putting new things in front of me to try to see if it works. And I did that a lot in ceramics where, for example, I would, in clay, I would stick in metal and put it in the kiln, which most people told me, oh, that's not going to work. It's going to blow up the work in the fire. But then I tried it, and it did work. And so that was a great challenge to me to be able to succeed in that. So I think in when you're a creative person, you constantly have to challenge yourself to to go a little higher and try out new ideas. Otherwise, it becomes boring. Also, too, uh, let's talk about divergent thinking. I have a feeling that, you know, when we, I brought this up earlier about the Waldorf School, mm-hmm. that they really encouraged that. And how does that impact your artwork, um, thinking divergently? Well, when you do creative work, I think the most important thing is to take chances and to always push yourself to the edge. Otherwise, your work doesn't doesn't have any interest. And the self-discipline, the self-motivation is one of the most important things when you work on your own because you don't have anybody telling you when to start your job, when to finish it. So that self-motivation comes out of creativity. And when you when you think openly, you know, you give yourself a chance that if this doesn't work, then you go to the next and never put a block in front of you. Be flexible in your whole life, even when it comes to cooking and your other things, not just your artwork. You need to have the flexibility and I think that's how you can progress the most. Well, the writer Erica John said, we create our own prisons. Mm-hmm. And there's no question, because we tell ourselves, oh, we can't do this or we can't do that. And we make assumptions which frequently are erroneous. Mm-hmm. And that's another way of blocking the divergent thinking. 
when I wrote my doctoral dissertation at UCLA on creativity, that's when I really became aware of the need to be a divergent thinker. And I think that anyone who is highly creative values their ability to think divergently and nurtures it. I agree. I agree totally. I I always say don't let fear block you because if you have fear, then you can't go anywhere. And I also, I love when people walk into my booth and say, wow, it looks like a child could make it. And I always say thank you so much because I think children still have the freedom. They're not blocked as much as we are as adults. And I always say don't lose the child within you. Because an artist, when you can keep that child, you stay free and you stay creative and you're not afraid. You know, when you look at the children's drawing, and I've, I've heard teachers say, well, a sky isn't purple. And I always say, who says it's not purple? That child sees a purple sky. Don't block it and say it's not because they see it that way. And that's why I think it's so important to keep the child inside of us alive. Now, I know you have two grown children. How did you raise them with this philosophy, Daniela? I I pretty much felt that both of them are so individual. Actually, I had to write a paper on that one time. And ah. I, I, I feel that it's so important that we don't assume that we just raise our children and that's the way it is. A lot of people say, oh, they both were raised the same way and they came out so differently. And I say, you can't raise two of them the same because they are so different, you have to treat them individually. And I just felt like my kids needed the freedom to be who they are. Now, sometimes we might have been a little bit too loose with them, but you know, they both became very abstract thinkers in their own right. Well, we'll talk more about that later and also about your your uh, unusual granddaughter whom I met. Um, so let's talk about the Affair in the Garden art show where I've seen you many years um, and ex- and thoroughly enjoyed the artwork. When I look at your sculptures, I say to myself, and I feel happy, and I start smiling. What do you do to create that response in people? And when did you switch over from clay and metal to metal entirely? The switching over from clay to metal was a gradual thing that happened in school. I was in undergraduate school, and I was just doing clay, and it went into clay sculptures. But then I always, like I said, tried to push myself to another other phase, and I got interested in just rusty pieces of metal that people threw out. You know, you can find them on the side of the freeway. Anywhere you go, you're going to find screws or anything on the floor that people throw away, or it's just discarded. And I became very interested in these objects, and I start combining the two. But then I wanted to push my sculptures a little bit further as I went into graduate school, and I just mentioned to one of my teachers I would love to learn how to weld because I felt the sculptures in with metal would be 
stronger and I could push it to a bigger boundary than with ceramics. And he said, well, let's go upstairs and I'll show you how to weld. And it was a you know half-hour session. And from then on, I just was fascinated with the strength of the fire that in one minute I can add on this large piece and it would stand up. So that's when it evolved from ceramics into the metal. And then what prompted you to decide to focus totally on metal? It was, again, I was able to execute my ideas better in metal than I was able to do it in ceramics. And, again, when you're creative, you can go from one thing to the other. You're not just a ceramic artist all your life. Whatever challenges you can get out of something else, you go on. And that's when I left um, clay behind and I started with metal around 1990 and I have been working with that ever since and the smiles on the faces of people at the Beverly Hills affair in the garden art show what do you do to create those smiling faces I you know it's not a conscious thing that I work towards but because I think the bright colors always evoke a happiness in people and also what I use I use very common things that mechanics throw away into the garbage to take you know springs out of motorcycles I collect all these things which actually my husband goes around and collects at junkyards and swap meets and wherever he can find these things and then I turn them into something whimsical, and I think that kind of evokes happiness in people because it's very common things that everybody has in their garage, but then I recreate them into something that they go, wow, I didn't know you could do that, but I know they could also. All they have to do is use their imagination. Talking about that, can you explain the creative design process and how you technically create an artwork. Okay. My husband brings all the material home that he finds, and my son and I, four years ago my son joined us because my husband and I are getting a little older, and he's a very creative person, and I asked him if he had any interest in working with us in the studio. And he came out and started welding for us. And I just saw he had enormous potential. And I have such a great customer base that one day it's not a business that you can sell to somebody. So I thought, what a great thing if I could give it over to one of my children. And he has been with us four years. And what we do is we go out in the yard where there's a lot of metal on different piles. And we execute an idea. You know, it might come to me in the middle of the night. It might come to my son, and he'll call me and say, oh, I just had a great idea. And we get together, and we lay out some pieces, and sometimes he does one all on his own, and sometimes we work together in designing it. And it's just a matter of saying, for example, we want to make an animal that has been in our mind. And so we look for the right parts. And he welds it together, and then I do the, all the painting. Okay. What's the price range on your uh, artwork, Daniela? On my metal pieces, it's usually for the smallest piece about 350 and it goes all the way up to about 5000 Okay. For large commission pieces. Oh, so, oh, I, oh, so if someone has an idea... 
they can talk to you and then commission you to create it? Is that what you mean by a commission piece? Well, commission pieces, they don't give me the idea of what I want to do because as an artist I want that freedom. But right. what they do is they'll tell me I have a space that is 15 feet tall and okay. I would like a piece for that space. So then they leave me the freedom to create what I want, but I do the sizes that they request. Ah, and that's interesting that they give you total freedom. I've never had a customer put put an idea on me that I couldn't execute. They might tell me we'd like an animal, and then I go and, and create the animal that I can imagine, but they never give me a drawing or anything like that. I don't think I could work like that. Well, yeah, because then you really wouldn't be an artist. You'd be more mm-hmm. uh, like, a, I guess, a technical person just carrying out their idea. And, and you, I don't think you can ever really execute somebody else's idea. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, at the affair in the garden, which I've been going to now for 20, I guess a little more than 20 years, the clientele I think is fascinating. I know that a recent guest, Brian Sutherland, told me that Bill Clinton stopped by his booth. Have that you ever was... had a visitor such as Bill Clinton at your booth? I, I, didn't, I didn't see Bill Clinton, but I've seen many, many other celebrities like Whoopi Goldberg and, and Michael Jackson. You, you see a lot of celebrities walk by, but you know what's interesting is they look different than when they're on TV, and a lot of times I don't recognize them until ah. they pass by and somebody says, do you know who that was? And I go, no. And they point it out. I wouldn't sometimes recognize them. Yeah, the 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 art show is also a great place for people watching too. Oh, it is. Going further, you're an entrepreneur. Who pitches your work to galleries and juried art shows? Okay, that's where my husband comes into the picture. He is a very natural salesman, and he loves that aspect of the business. And I'm not crazy about it. So he leaves all the creative work up to me. Sometimes he gets you know, involved in certain projects, but he really loves the aspect of the sales and contact with customers and shipping and all of that. He is just the best at it. And it almost seems like a puzzle with us. You know, My son now does the welding, I do the painting, and then we hand it over and my husband does the sale. So it's a terrific trio then. Now it's become a trio. For a long time, it was just the two of us. <laughs> so tell us about the se- tell us the secrets of Garrett's pitching ability, because in Win Without Competing, I talk about pick, probe, and pitch. And mm-hmm. when I coach people, that's probably the most difficult skill that. They need to learn to be successful both in their professional life and in their personal life because they need to understand the person on the other side of the pitch and that frequently they don't connect to. So tell us how Garrett does it. I call it an art because it really is you have to pick up the people that walk into your booth, and that's where he is so fabulous at. He always tells me that 
he watches them even before they walk into the booth. And by the time they walk in, he watches how they stand, how they look at the art, um, uh, do they engage in it for a long time, body language. But again, he probably could explain it so much better than I because he, you know, he does it. But I learned over the years that he engages them in a conversation. After they look for a while, he gives them a little bit space to have freedom to look around, and then he approaches them and, you know, starts just feel, making them feel comfortable. And everybody is different. Some of them it takes a little bit longer to engage, and others engage immediately. It depends on their personality. But it, there's also an art to closing a sale, and that's what he is very good at he can actually make them feel comfortable that they made the right decision at the end with what they're buying. I know that when we talked prior to the show, um, we figured out that some people are clear about what the right fit artwork is, and then others um, need some help in terms of figuring it out. So what role does Garrett play in terms of helping them see the blueprint of the right fit artwork. Okay, the ones that are very sure about what they want or where it fits, um, you know, they they make their own decision and they are very clear about what they want. And then there's the ones that sometimes they will even ask if we would bring three pieces over to their house and set them to see if they if they like it. Now, what's interesting, my husband doesn't like to do that because he knows right away with the person that is that unsure, there is a, a problem when you get to their house. Sometimes you bring several pieces, they want to see this one here, and then they want you to set it there, and it becomes a complicated thing. He doesn't like to put himself into that position. He likes to end the sale at the booth. Well, he's right. And, you know why, Daniela? Mm-hmm. Because what happens is, they will keep comparing and contrasting the pieces, mm-hmm. which prevents them from figuring out in their mind the mm-hmm. ideal piece. So exactly. he's absolutely right. I mean, when I do an executive search, I give my client employer one candidate, the right fit candidate. When I coach candidates, I teach them how to present themselves to a potential employer and show clearly that they are the one right fit. So he's absolutely right. I admire him. Yes, he, uh, a lot of artists go and do that, and he always tells them no, that um, you know, if they don't understand what they need now, they, right. it's not going to happen when he gets to their house. He's so, right. So um, at the end, they always make a decision, and sometimes they will say to him, well, what do you think? This is going to go outside on the patio. Would this look better than that? And then he comes into the play where he might help that woman make that final decision, which one would be the right thing. He'll ask him a question if it's a high ceiling or a low space, and then he'll say, well, if, it's, if it goes out in the yard, you want more of a substantial piece. And at the end, usually they are very happy once we deliver it, um, we've never had a person say, oh, no, that doesn't go. Ah, so he's very good doing the visualization, apparently, based on their specs. It, exactly. He helps them make that last decision. But I really have to say, out of 30 years of doing this, 
most of our customers are very sure of what they want. That's interesting. So you're saying, generally speaking, he doesn't have to do too much discussing. Uh, What would you say in terms of someone buying a number of pieces? Do you have clients that keep returning and buy several pieces? How does that work? That is the majority of our business is repeat clients. We have clients that literally have a piece from every one of my series, all for the 25 years that they have known us. And when I sell or my husband sells a piece, and sometimes I do, I know that once they take it home, they always come back for another one. <laughs> I have I don't think I have one customer that only has one piece unless they have very small spaces like an apartment. If mm-hmm. they have a yard, they usually add on. And so the the weather doesn't um do anything to the metal, Daniela? I have customers that have my pieces up in northern Minnesota, New York, and they come year after year and buy another one and add it on. Well, the only thing they have to do is they it's recommended that they spray it with a lacquer once a year if it's out in the elements, which most people will follow the instructions. And otherwise it looks like it's brand new from what you're saying. If, if they take care of it, uh, my metal pieces will stay outdoors at least, 10 years unless they're right by the sea and then they have to have a little bit more work and then they might have to be repainted after eight or nine years. So do you do that kind of work as well? We do have once in a while somebody will ship us something back to renew, repaint it after 10 or 12 years. Sometimes I'll go and patch up a little bit, you know, a paint if I'm in the town doing an art show and they'll call me and say something chipped. Or I'll send them the pain and they add it, add it up, you know, themselves. Okay. Going further, um, you and Garrett work together. How do you balance your professional and personal life? We work together. My studio is right here at the house, and my husband has an office inside the house, and I'm on the outside. And, you know, we kind of know what our work entails for that day. I usually get up very early, and so does he. I go out to my studio, start my work. I'm out there most of the day. We we kind of meet for lunch and come inside, have some lunch, and then he goes off and does his errands, goes, looks for material, calls customers, and we kind of merge together again in the evening. So we're in a space together, but we still don't feel like we're on top of each other. So it has worked out very well. And I know that you like to rejuvenate your creativity. You told me that you travel probably about half the year. So how does that work, the rejuvenation? What we do is we do a very intense period of shows from, for example, February through June. We do quite big shows. I work 12, sometimes 13-hour days all the way through the spring. And then June comes. For years now, that's been our tradition. We pack up the house, close down, and we go to some foreign country. And most we have a place in Jamaica, so we spend a lot of time down there. But next month we'll be traveling through Brazil. And last year was India. So we always pick a place that is new to us, that will bring a new challenge to us. And that 
also feeds me creatively. No, I think that's terrific that you know that you need to feed the creativity. So I think I think that's important. Absolutely. We I I could not do art shows 12 months of the year and just have that same routine because I I need a little downtime. I think everybody needs to relax and and kind of remove yourself from from the regular work schedule. And then I come back very refreshed, usually end of September, and then I start um, my work and I feel I have new ideas and I'm fresh and I can approach it with enthusiasm again. I know that at one point you and your husband owned your own gallery to sell your work. How long did you own it for and why did you decide it was the wrong fit for you? My husband decided when I was going to graduate school and I was tied down with school and we didn't have that much time to travel that he might try to do an art gallery and see how that goes. It was a new venture and we saw a nice little space and it was in a nice creative community and we decided to do that. So he opened up. But about six months into the gallery, he decided that it would take every day going there from morning till night and that if we pursued it on a serious, you know, for a long term, we could not leave the country or travel around the way we were used to. So we decided we'd do it for one year. It was very successful. We had a great time, you know, showing other people's work, and it was a great experience for him. But it wasn't the right fit for us because it was too... too how should I say it engaged us all year well, too round. confining, I think. Yes. Because remember, both of you are free spirits. Exactly. And it was a, a all year round thing and we couldn't just say, you know what, let's go off to Mexico for a month and we've done that all our lives. And so after a year, because we had the lease for a year, we decided that our shows suited us much better because we knew when to plan those and we knew when we didn't want to do the shows. Well, I think it's wonderful that you both together um, agree on how things should be managed and you both know how to manage the process to achieve your goals because that's really what you're saying. It is. It's like a puzzle. He does. He is really good at what he does, which is very important. The sales are very important or you don't live off your work. And then I fill in more of the creative part in producing the work. So it really has worked out very well. So you've, you've selected the right fit husband and the right fit business partner. And it just fell into, everything fell together. You know, it's not something you consciously know that you're you're really doing at my age. I was 18 when I met him, but... I knew that he was passionate about about seeing the world, and that was very important to me. Tell us a little bit about that granddaughter that I met who engaged me in conversation and was trying to sell me one of your artworks. It was a fascinating experience. She's incredible. I have two grandchildren. One is four, a boy, and she is gonna. She's twelve. She has come to every art show we've had in the LA area, and some of them even in Scottsdale, ever since she was born. 
my daughter made a point that she would come and, and get the experience of the art, and she started loving it so much that she would beg her mother every time we had a show plan that she could go with us. Even if she had to miss school on a Friday or on a Monday, she regularly came to us. And she started just being very open with people and very proud that she could tell them that her nonna makes makes this work. And as we go along, she would listen to my husband. And I said to my husband one day, she's so good with people. She explains the whole process. And, you know, some of them were a little taken aback, but this little girl would tell them all about it. But there was just something natural about her that she enjoyed selling. Well, I know that I first met her was a couple of years ago, so then she was 10. I mean, she ten. was just amazing. I mean, yes. she has so much poise. And and she's very proud of the work. <laughs> well, that's terrific. Who knows? She may decide she wants to start doing what you do. Well, she's telling me she wants to be a lawyer. Ah, well, yes. I guess she could be a lawyer and also a part-time artist. I mean, I have... Uh, Jan Constantine, who's the general counsel for the Authors Guild, who is an attorney, uh-huh. and also uh, she sings cabaret oh. in a New York club. <laughs> oh, so sure. it's, yeah, it's fascinating. So one never knows what one can combine if one is open, and okay. I think that goes back to what we talked about earlier, open to doing things that maybe other people may think sound a little bit strange, but if you don't base your decision on what others think, you can have a happier life. Oh, I agree with that. There's a saying that I I have a lot of things outside my wall that whenever I feel something is really profound, I write it on my block wall in the yard, and there's a saying saying, if you want to get nowhere, follow the crowd. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> and I, I that think... was always my my kind of philosophy. Absolutely. And I know you also told me that your daughter is now starting a Waldorf school. I guess in the tradition of your mother. She just converted. She's just finished converting her whole garage into this beautiful classroom, and all the toys are handmade, and it just looks fabulous, and she's going through the process of getting certified and getting her licenses for the city. Terrific. What career advice do you have for our listeners? I tell everybody that we all have an inner voice that tells us what we should be doing. No matter what anybody around you tells you, listen to that inner voice because it's always right. And don't be afraid to make big changes. If you are in a career that you don't like, that you're not happy, you know it's not the right thing, doesn't matter how old you are, there's always room to make another turn in your life. Well, I must say, Daniela, you have been inspirational today, and I'm sure our listeners will agree. Thank, Thank you, you for joining me. I Thank thoroughly so enjoyed much. our conversation, and I do hope you will come back soon. Thank you so much, Arlene, and I hope to see you at the next Beverly Hills show. You will. You will see me in October. Fabulous. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Okay, Upcoming bye. shows. 
please join me again next Wednesday, July 1st. I will interview Sandra Grassi Nelipovich, award-winning boutique artist whose designs have been featured on publication covers and in art books. You might even have worn her batiks as Sandra created a unique fabric for fabric designer Barbara Jacks. On July 8th, Sherilyn Kenyon, who, according to Publishers Weekly, is the reigning queen of the vampire novel. Kenyon had four books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. On July 15th, award-winning investigative journalist Stephen Freed, who is the author of four acclaimed books, The New Rabbi, Bitter Pills Inside the World of Legal Drugs, Thing of Beauty, The Tragedy of Supermodel Gia, and Husbandry. On July 22nd, Gunnar Johnson, creator of Throne Is, used in the film Batman Forever. On July 29th, Steve Jordan, fitness guru who overcame paralysis and memory loss. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com. That's Dr. Barrow at winwithoutcompeting.com or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Korea Success the Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com. And for search services, barrowglobal.com. B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.